All is not quiet on the Eastern Front. The lead starts right now. Russia's war against Ukraine enters a new phase with their assault on the Donbass region now begun. Russia's reported plans to, according to an intercepted communication, quote, level everything to the ground as a group of Ukrainian fighters hold down a steel plant near Mariupol and become the new symbol of resistance and desperation. Plus, anti-tank missile systems, helicopters, ammunition, and more growing concerns in the U.S. that the flood of weapons headed to Ukraine might end up in the wrong hands. Plus, sky-high celebrations as most mask mandates for public transit end, marking a landmark moment in the pandemic. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today in our world lead. It's top aide to Ukraine's president now warning not a single place, town, city, or village in Ukraine is safe as the Kremlin announces a new phase in its unprovoked war against its neighbor to the west. Today, the fate of the town of Mariupol rests on an unknown number of Ukrainian fighters trying to defend the city's iron and steel factory, a four-square-mile complex. They have rejected multiple calls from the Russians to surrender in part because of the estimated 1,000 civilians sheltering in the factory's basement. The Azov Battalion of Ukraine sharing this video, saying that these are the innocent men, women, children, babies who did nothing to deserve this bombardment and are now at the mercy of Putin's military. Despite relentless shelling and bombing from Russian forces, a local official tells CNN that as of this afternoon, quote, the Ukrainian flag is flying over the city. Today, the Pentagon confirmed a flight carrying U.S. security assistance for Ukraine Arrived in Europe yesterday, seven more flights are expected to land in the next 24 hours. Those weapons cannot arrive soon enough, the brother of Kiev's mayor tells CNN, because he expects if Russia succeeds in eastern Ukraine, Putin will once again try to capture the country's capital of Kiev. We crucially need help now. We can only defend our country during the war with the weapons. We expect everything and anything, especially in regards to the capital. Of course, we're waiting for them to come back. CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, is live for us in the Donbass region. Clarissa, you're less than 20 miles away from the fighting between Russia and the Ukrainians. What, what are you seeing on the ground there? Well, as you can see, we have to actually stand inside our hotel to do the live shots. There's a very strict curfew here and a total blackout. And that's because we're in this town, Bakhmut, less than 20 miles away from some of the heaviest fighting that we're seeing play out along this eastern front. The village or town, I should say, that we are closest to is called Papasna, where there has been incredibly intense battles taking place throughout the day as Russian forces have been pushing further in, local authorities warning uh, that they no longer are able to effectively evacuate people. They continue to try to do so, but it has become more and more dangerous trying to get people out safely while there is such heavy fighting going on. It's interesting, though, Jake, when you talk to people on the streets here, even though they can hear the sounds of those booms, those thuds of artillery in the distance, many of them are still refusing to leave. They say they don't have enough money, they don't have a place to go, and they're unwilling to leave their homes without some kind of a guarantee that there will be something to come back to at the end of this. We also heard uh, Ukrainian authorities confirming that the town of Kremina, uh, again, one of these frontline towns in the Donbass region, is now under control 
of Russian forces, and yet they are also experiencing a number of counteroffenses from the Ukrainian forces as they try to block off Russian supply routes. Jake. Clarissa, you heard the concern from the brother of the mayor of Kiev, his concern that if Russia is successful in the east, Putin will try again to, to capture Kiev. You've reported from a number of cities in and around Kiev. Do you think Russian forces could be more successful on a second attempt? Well, I think that this battle that is going to take place in the east or that is starting to take shape is a very different battle uh, to the one that we saw in and around Kiev and up and in the north around Chernigiv and Sumy region. In many ways, this terrain definitely favors Russian forces. Um, but at the same time, Russian forces are also very depleted. And as I mentioned before, Ukrainians are launching attacks on their supply routes. So the conclusion of this is not foregone by any measure. As to the possibility of then going on and trying to take other cities, um, I think that's probably a tall order from the Russians. Keep in mind, in all this time, they've really only been able to take one uh, regional capital of Kherson, a city of roughly 300,000 people. But certainly when you talk to people on the ground in Kiev, in Chernigiv, in places that were either under Russian occupation or close to it, they do not trust Russia, and they are fully in anticipation of the possibility of some kind of of a renewed attack, Jake. All right, Clarissa Ward, thank you so much. To Kramatorsk now and CNN's Ben Wiedemann. Ben, today you visited the site of that missile strike. Um, what did you see? Well, we were in central Kramatorsk today when we saw and heard a very large explosion and we went to investigate. Just a few minutes after three o'clock in the afternoon here in Kramatorsk, a missile hit this construction warehouse, causing all of this damage. And at least one person was killed. The body is under this yellow and blue tarp. And according to police on the scene, at least three people were injured. About an hour before this strike, there was another missile strike in another part of town. But as far as we know, there were no injuries in that case. Now, as Russian forces mass nearby and have actually taken one town about an hour's drive from here, this may be a taste of things to come. And afterwards, we went to a hospital where the injured were being treated one after another, and then they started having other operations on soldiers from the front. The doctors there say they are getting no rest. Jake? And Ben, Kramatorsk uh, also, of course, where the Russian military attacked the, that train station packed with civilians. Uh, what is it about Kramatorsk, you think, that makes it such an attractive target for the Russians? Well, if you look at the map, uh, the Russians are to the south, to the north, and further to the east. Really, if the Russians intend to carry out with their uh, pledge to retake or take the Donbass region, Kramatorsk is right in the middle of it. And the expect we've already gotten indications that the Russians are trying to push from the north, uh, heading toward a town called Slovyansk, which is just about a 25-mile drive from here, and up from the south as well. So if they manage to do that, they will be able to seal off a large area where the, Ukraine, the, the Ukrainian forces are already concentrated. So I think that's the, the thing. They want to encircle uh, the large 
military presence in the eastern part of the country and then do something, eliminate them, perhaps, Jake. Ben Wiedemann and Kramatorsk, thank you. In case there was any, ever any question about Vladimir Putin's true intentions in Ukraine, he's now awarded an honorary title to the military brigade accused of committing those horrendous war crimes in the Ukrainian town of Bucha. For weeks, we have brought you the graphic images of what Putin's forces left behind there, the mass graves, the dead bodies thrown out with the trash after they were bound and shot in the head, the new cemeteries full of unmarked graves. So many of these victims women, children, civilians. Now Putin is praising the soldiers who decimated Bucha for their, quote, great heroism and courage, and for, quote, protecting Russia's sovereignty and national interests. Joining us now to discuss, Gary Kasparov, chair of the Renewed Democracy Initiative and longtime critic of Putin. And Gary, you say this is part of Putin's usual pattern. Explain. Absolutely. Um, those who are surprised by the atrocities committed by Russian troops in Ukraine, uh, they should be reminded about Putin's long record, beginning with uh, the Second Chechen War in Grozny more than two decades ago. Uh, Putin has been a war criminal uh, from the very start. And uh, failing to win the war with a direct assault, as he tried uh, the first few days of of this war, uh, he came back to his uh, uh, favorite tactics to b- bombard Ukrainians into submission. Same way they they did with Syrians uh, when Putin rescued Bashar al-Assad. And uh, now you can just uh, follow Russian propaganda, publications on state control media. They're talking about denazification, uh, not political only, but as extermination of those who will not uh, bow to Putin's rule. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was asked multiple times today if Russia had any plans to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. As you know, there are concerns he might use, they might use a low-yield or tactical nuclear weapon. And Lavrov would not answer outright, but he said Russia has historically opposed the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, how credible a threat is it, do you think, that Putin might consider using nuclear weapons in Ukraine? I don't know, but I would not uh, trust Lavrov. Whatever he says, we should consider it's a lie before he proves otherwise. Uh, Lavrov and his boss in uh, the Kremlin, they have a longstanding record of lying on every occasion. Uh, But I still doubt very much that the nuclear option is on the table because I don't believe that Putin will have enough generals and admirals to execute his orders. It seems they don't have the same appetite to die for Putin's geopolitical ambitions. What do you think Putin's next move might be if he is successful in seizing the Donbass region? And obviously there are a lot of pro-Russian separatists in that region already. There's been a a war going on there since 2014. Do you think uh, if he is successful in the East, he's willing to walk away and say, look, we got the Donbass, that's our victory? Or does he want the whole country? Uh, There were no separatists in eastern Ukraine, always Russian paramilitary forces that just not wearing Russian uniform. As for the outcome of this uh, of the battle for Donbass, if Putin prevails, God forbid, I have no doubt he'll move on. And I don't have to guess. That's what has been said many, many times and being repeated on Russian television. Ukraine statehood must be destroyed. They keep repeated day, day after day. And uh, Putin's ambitions They're not limited by just taking few territories in eastern Ukraine. He sees Ukraine as an obstacle to his um, geopolitical agenda. That is to demonstrate that he is a ruler, not of just Ukraine, but Eastern Europe as a whole. 
He made it very clear 50 years ago at Munich Security Conference when he talked about return to spheres of influence, same language as being used by Hitler and Stalin to divide Europe. And we have to give him credit. He's very consistent in pushing this agenda. And that's why we have to do absolute everything in our power to help Ukraine uh, survive uh, and repel Russian forces. So, Gary, just a few minutes ago, you referred to Russian generals. You thought there maybe wouldn't be any that would be willing to carry out a nuclear attack if Putin ordered it. You've also recently said uh, that there could be a palace coup in Russia against Putin. Um, How likely do you think it is uh, that that could happen? I thought I was more under the impression that Putin had gotten rid of anybody that had that kind of independent thinking a long time ago. I'm not sure that the latest project was about independent thinkers. He was looking for scapegoats. And I think it, it, it also sent a message to all generals that they will pay an ultimate price if Putin fails. But uh, we all know that the moment dictator looks weak and military defeat, that's a demonstration of, of his weakness, he is vulnerable. So that's why the, uh, the preconditions for potential coup, palace coup in Russia, is number one, military defeat uh, in Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian victory. And uh, ideally, uh, recovery of Crimea that is sacred for Putin's um, legitimacy in Russia. And then uh, uprising in Russia. Russian economy is on the verge of collapse. Two, three more months. And you will see people uh, going to the streets. And uh, if Putin runs out of money to pay for police and propaganda machine, then we'll see his inner circle looking for his scapegoat. And typically, he's dictating himself. Gary Kasparov, thank you so much for your time today. And, and also, of course, for your activism on these issues for so many years. Beyond all the stories of lives lost, killed in Russia's invasion, a small dose of hope. As CNN finds a Ukrainian man unwilling to give up in the desperate search for his missing father. Plus, with no American forces on the ground, the growing concerns that U.S. weapons could fall into the wrong hands in Ukraine. Stay with us. In our world lead in Kiev's suburbs, a wide-scale operation is underway to try to recover and identify the hundreds of slaughtered civilians in mass graves. The Ukrainian police say almost 1,000 bodies have been recovered just from the Kyiv region. Sadly, that staggering number of bodies makes it difficult for families to identify their loved ones. Still, some are still holding out hope. CNN's Ed Lavendera follows the story of one Ukrainian son desperately looking for his dad who went missing in a Kyiv suburb more than a month ago. Oleksii Karuk is searching for answers in a place where answers were buried or bombed. But Alexei must find his father. Igor Karuk disappeared while helping a friend escape the war zone west of Kiev. He talked about it so lightheartedly that I felt like everything would be all right. We didn't have information that civilians were being shot, so I wasn't worried. On March 8th at 8 o'clock in the morning, you got seven different texts from your dad. What do they say? Uh, he, he said that he is going to... Uh, drive here n- near um, Bordanka, yes, uh, to uh, take his friend and uh, to bring him to Kiev. What did you write back to him? Uh, to, I I, uh, I asked him to to be careful, to to care for himself, and that's all. Those were the last words father and son exchanged. Oleksii is joined by his father's friend, Andriy Felin. They're looking for Igor's car, hunting for clues in the neighborhoods ravaged by Russian forces, putting up pictures of the 48-year-old father of two boys, hoping someone has answers. 
Unraveling the mysteries of what happened to countless missing people is another horrific chapter in this war. In the aftermath of Russia's siege around Kyiv, Oleksiy and Andrei are on their own to find Igor. How difficult is it to do this? So many days searching and searching and no answers. I don't know. I, I don't know words uh, because uh, we don't know uh, where he may be. This map shows the ground they've covered looking for Igor, but so far every question leads to another dead end. That lead didn't help. Then the men discovered four civilian cars scorched on a quiet road. Inside one of the cars, human bones were visible. Andre thought one of the cars might be Igor's. When you arrived here and you saw this, what did you feel? Uh, I, I just cry. Uh, I, I don't see uh, anything because uh, I have cried. It wasn't Igor Karuk's car. It's not his car. Do you still think you can find him alive? Hope dies the last. Hope dies last? Yes. The search continues for this father who vanished in the war. And Jake, the human disaster left in the wake of Russian forces evacuating from these suburbs around Kyiv is just unimaginable. There are so few places these families can go to find answers. You saw this family go from a police station to a military unit uh, to asking people in a restaurant. No centralized list of where the missing might be, where they can go. Answers are just impossible to find right now. Jake? Ed Lavender and Kiev, thank you so much. The U.S. State Department is considering ways to label Russia a state sponsor of terrorism, how this could be more than a symbolic move as the world looks to punish Putin for all these atrocities in Ukraine. Stay with us. In our world lead today, seven more U.S. planes full of military aid are on their way to Ukraine, according to a U.S. defense official. Part of the latest $800 million security assistance package. In total, the Defense Department says the United States has sent more than $2.6 billion worth of security assistance since Putin's unprovoked war began, including, but not limited to, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, Javelin anti-tank missiles, howitzers, helicopters, armored personnel carriers, body armor, helmets, and 50 million rounds of ammunition. CNN's Kylie Atwood and Katie Bo Lillis uh, join us now. Katie Bo, let me start with you. How is the U.S. tracking all this military equipment as it gets to Ukraine? I, the short answer, Jake, is, is that they're not. The U.S. is, for many of these systems, is largely reliant on what the Ukrainians tell them about what units this equipment is going to, how it's being used. And, uh, you know, as one source who's been briefed on the intelligence told us, he said, we have fidelity for a short time, 
But when it enters the fog of war, we have almost zero. It drops into a big black hole, and you have almost no sense of it at all after a short period of time. And there's two big reasons for this. And, and one of them is that many of the systems that the United States is sending are smaller man-portable systems, uh, you know, things like shoulder-fired missiles or single-use drones, the kind of things that are fairly efficient to transport and potentially easier to hide than, say, a major air defense system like the S-300 that Slovakia has just sent. And, of course, the other reason that is that is really critical here, Jake, is the United States military is not in Ukraine. It is not embedded with the Ukrainian military the way that the U.S. was in Afghanistan, for example, in a way that would allow them to do a much more precise accounting of how this equipment is being used, where these arms are being sent, which units are taking them, and, and ultimately, again, how they're being used. And Kylie, you have some new reporting on the State Department looking at a new avenue to hold Russia accountable. Tell us more. Yeah, so the Biden administration says they're looking at every single way possible to hold Russia accountable. And that includes potentially adding Russia to the list of state sponsors of terrorism. That's according to a senior administration official. Now, that determination is probably not going to be made for a few weeks. It might take even longer. But what the State Department is doing is looking at the definition of a state sponsor of terrorism, which is a country that has repeatedly supported acts of international terrorism, and comparing that to what Russia has done in Ukraine. Now, there are only four countries that are currently on this list. So adding Russia to that list alongside uh, countries like North Korea and Iran, of course, would make it an even more international pariah. But Kylie, would would that designation, state sponsor of terrorism, would it, it actually harm Russia in any way or is it just symbolic? It is symbolic, but it would have uh, some impact that is further impact on the Russian economy. We should note the Biden administration has already rolled out a tremendous number of sanctions. So that change may be negligible, but it would be there. So, for example, there would no longer uh, be certain things that the United States could export to Russia that could be used for commercial or military use. And other countries who are still doing trade with Russia would be prevented from doing some of that trade potentially have to pull back because if they didn't, they could be subject to some U.S. sanctions. Katie, you said something interesting a moment ago. You said one of the reasons that the U.S. can't keep track of all these weapon systems is uh, unlike in Afghanistan, um, the U.S. has no presence in Ukraine. Um, But when you brought up Afghanistan, it made me think about the fact that after the U.S. left, all those weapon systems fell in the hands of the Taliban, whether or not they knew how to use them. Um, Is there concern that that might happen here as well, except with Russians taking control of all these American weapon systems? Yeah, almost, Jake. So the the concern is less that these arms are going to fall into the hands of the Russians. The concern is a little bit more long-term than that. U.S. officials broadly acknowledge that the risk here is that at the close of this conflict, whenever that may be, that if there are arms left, some of them could wind up on the black market and could end up in the hands of militias and militaries that the United States did not intend to arm. And and of course, this is is a risk that the Biden administration has had to bake into its decision-making calculus here when it Determined that it was going to send this really free flow of, of arms into Ukraine. One defense official that we spoke to was very clear. Uh, this person said that the Biden administration views the risk of not arming Ukraine adequately enough to push back the Russians as a greater risk than the long-term possibility that some of these arms could wind up on the black market. That's often the choice between two bads and which one is worse. Precisely. Yeah, Katie Bellillis and Kylie Atwood, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The first full day of most mask rules lifted from most public transit. Why the rules are not the same everywhere you go in the United States, that's next.
And our health lead now, a major shift in COVID travel restrictions. For the first time in two years, many U.S. travelers will no longer be required to wear masks after a Trump-appointed federal judge in Florida struck down the CDC's nationwide mandate, which was set to expire on May 3rd anyway. In the wake of the decision, many public transportation systems, ride-sharing companies, and several major airlines have all announced customers are now free to take off their masks if they want, show their smiles. But as CNN's Pete Montine reports, some airports and some mass transit systems say they are imposing their own requirements. It is a new maskless era for pandemic travel, marking the end of the 14-month-long federal mandate that required masks on board planes, trains, buses, rideshares, and in terminals. Disappearing along with the mandate, the signs that reminded travelers to wear masks, along with masks themselves being tossed in the trash by airline passengers as word spread late Monday. Masks will be optional this evening. In-flight celebrations were kicked off by a surprise court decision that initially caused confusion in the travel industry and ushered in a new patchwork of mask rules. Some airports will still require masks, such as Chicago O'Hare, as well as New York's Kennedy and LaGuardia, even though nearby Newark Airport will not. Masks will also be required on New York's subway system, as well as other mass transit systems that impose their own rules. This was not an orderly shift. This is not the way that you move uh, public policy. The sweeping new changes come during a spring break travel surge. The latest TSA numbers say more than 11 million people flew nationwide over the long Easter weekend. With what could be a huge summer travel season on the horizon, the CDC remains firm on its guidance, telling travelers to continue to wear masks, even in the absence of a federal mandate. Just because this ruling was made by a judge doesn't mean that suddenly the science has changed. In her decision, U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mazel likened the mandate to, quote, detention and quarantine. Since the start of the pandemic, U.S. airlines unilaterally banned thousands of passengers for violating mask rules, but are now letting them decide for themselves. More comfortable without a mask. I feel very safe, especially since airplanes are one of the safest indoor places, you know, that I don't think mask is Even in traveling here and in, in being in downtown in New York and everybody not wearing, able to not wear masks and things, I felt much more comfortable keeping mine on. This court battle might not be over just yet, Jake. We're just learning that the Biden administration could likely appeal this federal judge's decision. That, according to the Health and Human Services Secretary, who said that in a press conference, ultimately it will be up to the Justice Department to decide how to move forward with all of this. But it only adds to the confusion that passengers have over the end of the transportation mass mandate. Remember, it was already supposed to end two weeks from now on May 3rd. Jake. Piemontina at Reagan National Airport for us. Thanks so much. Joining us now in studio to help break us down what this change means for health policy and health in the U.S., Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean of the School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College in Texas. I'm guessing you think that it is the wrong decision by the judge and the wrong decision by the Biden administration to not appeal it, but you tell me. Well, it was certainly inevitable that eventually we have to uh, lift mask restrictions. We can't go on like this forever. The problem is not now, Jake. This, the BA2 subvariant is accelerating, and we're seeing a big rise in the number of cases in Massachusetts, in New York, in Vermont, and hospitalizations are going up as well. There's been a 100% increase in hospitalizations in Vermont over the last 
uh, two weeks. So uh, when, when I was asked um, by uh, members of the White House what I thought, I said, look, eventually they have to come off. Don't do it now when BA2 is accelerating because that's, going, that's consuming uh, all over the Northeast and eventually it could spread nationally. So just hang on, you know, just hang on a few more weeks. I can't tell you whether it's going to be two weeks or whether we have to wait an extra month. It will start going down. It won't be as bad as Omicron, but it's still substantial. One of the things that's, that's kind of frustrated me as a journalist is that there is such a difference between the risk on an airplane and the risk on a bus or a plane. Uh, airplanes constantly have this air coming in and out, uh, whereas a, a bus or a, a train doesn't. I mean, shouldn't we be distinguishing between those two? We should, but remember with this BA2 subvariant, it is more transmissible than Omicron, which was more transmissible than Delta, which is more transmissible than Alpha, which is more transmissible than the original variant. We're looking at a virus agent now that is up there with measles, the single most infectious agent that we know. So all bets are off what happens when on an airplane. And even if you wear a mask on an airplane, if the individual next to you is sneezing and releasing uh, COVID-19 virus into the atmosphere because that individual doesn't have a mask on, that still increases your risk. This only really works when both sides have masks and then the, the protective effect is, is, is there's synergy there. But, but now you're going to lose that because too many people are not going to have masks on. So Dr. Hotez, you note accurately the cases are up in parts of the U.S. But, but COVID hospitalizations, which we know are a more important metric than, than cases, are about the same as last week and nearly the lowest we've had on record during the entire pandemic. Doesn't that bolster the argument uh, in favor of dropping the mask mandate? Not exactly, because uh, this is right now a regional problem, not a national problem, the BA2 subvariant. It's, Where is it? What it's region? taking off in the Northeast, right here in Washington, D.C. Um, it's, it's taking off in New York, New Jersey, Vermont, and hospitalizations are going up. Now, it's starting at a very low level. So when I talk about a 30 to 40 percent rise in hospitalizations, I don't want to create undue alarm because it's going at a low level. But they are going up, no question about it. And what we don't know is how, how extensive this BA2 subvariant is going to be. I do not think it's going to be nearly as impressive as what Omicron did, but it's still going to be substantial and we're still going to see a lot of hospitalizations. And by the way, we're still losing 500 Americans every day to COVID-19. Who are we losing? Who are the people? Are they, are they overwhelmingly unvaccinated, overwhelmingly uh, not boosted, overwhelmingly over 70 overwhelmingly obese or smokers? Who are they? A bit, little bit of everything, uh, mo- mostly the unvaccinated. Uh, even if you've gotten two doses, not a booster, you still have some vulnerability there. And uh, of those of extreme age as well. So this is why we, this is not the time to really let down our guard. As I say, we're not going to need to do this in perpetuity, but if we hung on another few weeks, it could have made a substantial difference. I guess the reason I ask is because one of the things I hear from people out there is, look, I'm vaccinated. I'm boosted. If they're over 60, maybe I'm double boosted. I've been safe the whole time. I want to live my life. The risk to me is very, very low. Uh, If people who are not vaccinated want to continue being unhealthy, I don't care if they have a mask on or not. That's an argument I hear. I'm not saying I support it. But do you understand what I mean? Uh, Again, I'm saying we don't have to wear masks in perpetuity. But if we're only talking a few more weeks, and by the way, the judge must have known that. The judge must have known that the Transportation Department, the White House, was already moving in that direction to um, loosen mask restrictions. So from from my perspective, this is nothing more than a political stunt coming out of Florida. And, 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 And it has two problems. One, it puts people at risk for BA2. 
The other thing is I don't want to set a precedent where some random federal judge in Florida is overriding decisions from the Centers for Disease Control. This individual has no public health background. I think that sets a very dangerous precedent. So I think almost it might be worth having the Biden White House challenge it just on that grounds alone. So we don't because now what what comes next? Um, when we have another pandemic, is, is every time now you're going to have a federal judge from the state of Florida or from a, another state that has an axe to grind with the president going to subvert public health? We can't live as a country like that. Well, we don't know that she did this because she has an axe to grind with the punishment. With the president, she just, I mean, this was her ruling, take it or leave it. And I understand you, you would like to leave it. Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Coming up next, pushing back on the president's plan for migrants at the border and some of the loudest voices of opposition are coming from within the Democratic Party. Stay with us. International lead growing opposition, not just from Republicans, but from Democrats to President Biden's plans to end pandemic-era border restrictions known as Title 42. The rules first implemented under the Trump administration allow border agents to quickly return some migrants, mostly to Mexico, without the opportunity for them to seek asylum, this being done in the name of public health because of the COVID pandemic. Senator Gary Peters of Michigan, who chairs the Democrats' Senate campaign arm, is the latest Democrat to voice opposition to the Biden plan. CNN's Rosa Flores joins us now live from Houston. And Rosa, even before Title 42 ends next month, border authorities are reporting a 22-year high in arrests along the southern border in March. Why is this happening now? You know, Jake, in part, it's cyclical. It's definitely historic. Customs and Border Protection reporting more than 220,000 migrant encounters in March alone. Now, the key factor here is that in 50 percent of those cases, uh, border officials were able to return these migrants right back to Mexico or to their home countries under Title 42. And as you know, starting late next month, they will not be able to do that. That is what both Republicans and Democrats have been asking the Biden administration about, about their plan, not just on how the Biden administration plans to process all of these migrants because they're expecting an increase, but also how they plan to maintain national security. Now, all of this is happening in the backdrop of the midterm elections. That's why we're seeing a growing number of vulnerable Democrats that are bucking their party, opposing the lifting of Title 42 against their own Democratic Party, again, because they are vulnerable. Vulnerable, they are afraid of what could happen at the ballot box. Now, if you ask the Biden administration, they'll say that they are building soft-sided facilities to process these migrants and that they're flooding the zone with extra agents to make sure that they maintain national security and that they're also looking at the longer-term, bigger picture. And that's why Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Panama right now talking to leaders from over 20 countries of the Western Hemisphere to make sure that they have these talks, longer-term talks, and the State Department also hinting at a possible agreement, a possible compact, when it comes to migration. But, Jake, back to these vulnerable Democrats. At this point, they're not buying it. They're bucking their party. And, Rosa, you you recently traveled to San Antonio, where the mayor is also sounding the alarm about the possible impact rescinding Title 42 and what impact that will have on a city. Tell us about that. 
you know, there's a lot of concerns there because recently there was a huge increase, a spike in the number of migrants that federal uh, immigration officials dropped off in the city of San Antonio. And so what happened, Jake, is that a lot of these migrants did not have planned destinations. They didn't have money to leave the city of San Antonio. And so they started sleeping at a city park. They started sleeping outside. That, of course, raising a lot of concerns. The city mayor uh, there, a Democrat, sounding the alarm, sending a letter to DHS saying that it is it was unsustainable for this increased number of migrants to be dropped off in his city and also asking the Biden administration to give the city a heads up before increasing the number of migrants that were being dropped off. As we've seen so many times, the nonprofit sector jumped in. They opened up a shelter so migrants are no longer sleeping outside in San Antonio. I asked DHS about this. They have not responded. But the city of San Antonio does say that since the mayor sent that letter on March 31st. They've been in constant communication with Customs and Border Protection and also with FEMA. And Jake, I should add that in a memo that was obtained by CNN, we also learned from the city uh, manager that he sounded the alarm saying that if this increase in migrants continues in the city of San Antonio, that if Title 42 is lifted, that the city's ability to meet the humanitarian need would be limited. Jake? Mm. Rosa Flores in Houston for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, New scenes of devastation from Ukraine and the once thriving town that President Zelensky now says may be worse than Bucha. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the changes being discussed in Florida that could take away the special status of the happiest place on earth. Then, it looks like nothing is left. I went inside one of the Ukrainian towns, Russian forces bombed and then occupied for weeks until Ukrainians fought them out. And leading this hour, a new phase of Putin's unprovoked war in Ukraine is now underway. That's how Russia describes its assault in the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. Kharkiv's mayor says there's been nonstop bombardment of the civilian areas in his town. Now a top aide to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says no city, town or village in Ukraine is safe. Multiple Ukrainian officials have said it's impossible to count the dead. As the war continues, even President Zelensky himself told me he cannot possibly know how many have died in Russian-held areas. As CNN's Phil Black reports for us now, even the morgues in Ukraine are struggling to keep up with the death toll. I want to warn you, some of the images we're about to show you may be disturbing. Morgues aren't supposed to be busy. Or so over capacity, they need a team of volunteers to move bodies around and large mobile refrigerators to accommodate them. This is one of seven sites in and around Kiev working to cope with the tide of death left behind by Russia's retreating forces. Are there still more bodies coming? Uh, coming, yes. Lots. Uh, lots. Lots every day at morning. Andrei Bilyakov normally teaches forensic medicine. Now he's a full time volunteer performing endless autopsies. But how many murders are you saying? Murders, uh, I think uh, near to 30% is exactly murder. By his definition, that means 30% of the people in these bags have deliberate gunshot wounds to the head. We witness a continuous cycle. Shuffling bodies from vehicles to storage to autopsy to storage and ultimately preparation for burial. Usually, it will be their second. Most have been exhumed from temporary graves. 
Families buy new clothes for those they've lost as a gesture of love and respect. But they often go unworn. They can only be laid inside the coffin. The condition of the bodies means dressing them is impossible. Among those lying here waiting to be collected is Roman Lipa. His family says he was killed when munitions struck his home in a small remote village. Roman's wife, Victoria, survived only to endure a form of hell. Intense fighting meant she couldn't escape the house. Victoria's brother, Ihor, says, my sister had to step over her husband's body for two weeks. She had to go through it to get to food or water. The room is still covered in blood. She is very bad now, very bad. I don't know how she will live with this loss. Others who grieve are living through a different form of hell. They can't find the body of the person they love. Vladimir is searching for his brother Leonid. He shows us where he was shot and killed. Where he was buried in a shallow, makeshift grave before officials exhumed the body and took it away. So Volodymyr has taken leave from active duty to travel through devastated communities, going from morgue to morgue, but no one can help. Eventually, he's directed to a police office with a central list of the dead. He's told his brother probably hasn't been processed yet. Volodymyr must return to the war. He doesn't know when he'll be able to come back, even if Leonid's body is found. It hurts a lot, he says. It hurts a lot, but we don't give up. Russia has left so much death behind in areas near Kiev. Some people must wait their turn to grieve. Jake, at these morgues you also see prosecutors working to record and investigate crimes in the hope of one day holding someone accountable. They know it won't be easy. President Putin helped prove that by now giving an award to Russia's 64th Separate Guards Motor Rifle Brigade, a unit, according to the Ukrainian government, which was directly involved in the atrocities in Bucha. According to Putin's award, they deserve commemoration for courage uh, and professionalism, for astute and bold action during Russia's special military operation in Ukraine. Yeah, they're proud of it. Phil Black reporting live for us from Keys. Thank you so much. Joining us live to discuss Republican Congresswoman Victoria Sparts of Indiana. She's the only Ukrainian-American member of Congress and just returned from a trip to Ukraine where she was able to visit the town of Bucha, the region of Chernihiv. This is her first national interview since coming back. Congresswoman, thank you so much, and we're glad you got back uh, okay. I, I want to ask you about the devastation that you saw in and around Chernihiv. It's a city in northern Ukraine near the borders of Belarus and Russia. You sent us a video of a woman telling you about what happened in her small village and who's left. What did she and other survivors tell you? Thank you for having me. You know, I grew up in Chernigov region and spent, you know, a big part of my life in use in Chernigov. And I have to tell you, you know, the city is heroic to hold the ground for over a month and really help to save the Kiev. But the destruction was just unbelievable. Most villages almost burned for the ground. So this lady shared with me that... You know, from over 700 people, they only have, you know, less than 40 that's still left there. And some of them living in the basements and sheds. Others just tried to 
come and clean uh, the rubbles. I mean, she said they were bombing it with half-ton bombs nonstop. And then in one day, they threw something that pretty much almost burned the whole village to the ground. And she was showing that she has nothing left, the place she lived. And it's, it's a pretty miserable place. And that's a lot of a lot of villages. And they tortured people, held them in the basement in large group. I mean, the, 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 the destruction of the city is almost 70% of the city has left destruction. No water they had for two weeks under siege, but these people are heroic. I mean, yeah. these people are real heroes. We have some videos that you took in that woman's uh, village near Chinev, uh craters from shelling, just steps from a playground where kids are playing, buildings and homes bombed beyond recognition. How difficult and surreal was this for you to see in person? I really cannot believe that things like that are happening in the 21st century. You know, you read things like that in the books about World War II, where my grandma, who is 95, said this destruction, this area hasn't seen even during Stalin times in World War II. But this is the tragedy of women and children. You look at these kids, you know, playing the rubbles, so really cleaning the rubbles, and women are trying to, you know, get their life together and figure out how they can live frozen with children. I mean, it's I just cannot believe that one person can hold the whole world hostage. And we see what's happening in Mariupol. I mean, a ton of children and women are going to be killed, and they're trying to do bunker bombs to kill children that are hiding on the ground. I mean, this is atrocities, and this is not a war. This is a genocide of the people. I want to show some more videos you sent us. There's a hospital in Chernihiv with a crater uh, just outside. You also shared with us this video of a well that residents dug by hand. What, what happened there? Well, you know, when you look at the city, you've noticed that they tried to hit hospitals, schools, libraries. They tried to hit, hit stores with food. And, you know, people didn't have and water infrastructure, so they ran out of any fire hundred water. So they had by hand to dig a well, you know, to supply at least some water for last two weeks of siege because, you know, they didn't have any water. And it's over 100,000 people still were left in the city. And they didn't allow humanitarian corridors. So any people, they bombed the main bridge. And then there was a pedestrian bridge. And anyone who tried to get on that bridge, they would shoot them. So no one could get out, so they had to do something to be able to survive because with no water, you cannot survive for a long time. But people tried to do anything they could, and they, you know, and they were able at least to supply some water for the people. So the Biden administration is sending more uh, military aid. It's a 2.6 billion total so far since the invasion. I've heard some Ukrainian government officials say that they really think some of the European countries are not even remotely coming close to doing what they need to do to help stop this, as you, as you put it, a genocide, uh, especially Germany uh, still buying all of that Russian fuel that is paying for this war. Who do you want to act more and what do you want them to do? I think the, the West and the world, if we do not want to destabilize the whole world and really have this crisis and war continue even further, we have to get serious and put pressure on Putin to get to the table. And unfortunately, the only pressure he will understand now is military pressure. If we supply proper weapons, us in Western Europe, in Eastern Europe, to help you know, Ukrainian people to fight this war and stop him, you know, then we will have a resolution and, and discussion. But as of right now, he's killing people and he will kill more people and he's not going to stop. And we need to think about implication of the war 
world economy and what Hungary was going to do to the rest of the world in this instability, it will have material implications. And by the end of the year, this crisis will have world on fire. So I think it's a very serious situation and strong and decisive actions now extremely important. And it's not a joke situation. I think we need to push on Europe and lead them, but also on some other countries around the world too. The mayor of Mykolaiv told CNN today that Russian forces are ruining his city, committing genocide. Take a listen. I can call this a genocide. They shoot all over the city. They uh, shoot all over the districts and uh, they shoot in apartment, residential apartment blocks. They uh, Yesterday they bombarded uh, the kindergarten and uh, they just shoot in direction of the city. I've heard some commentators on the left and the right say this is not a genocide. You, you say it is a genocide. Why? Well, you know, if you're trying to target civilians and kill a lot of them because you cannot suppress them, because these people want to be with us in the West, they want to be free country, they don't want the socialist communist dictatorship. You know, if that is a definition, what genocide is. Even you target to kill people and throw underground bunker bombs in Mariupol to kill them. If you go and shoot people in head and put their hands to the back, I mean, this is not a war. You know, and I think this investigation had to happen. And I think United Nations as an organization is became very dysfunctional and worthless. And there's the questions we need to ask. It has to be either reformed or dissolved because it's not doing a job to bring peace and stability. I think this is a serious issue and a lot of people are dying and a lot more are going to die if we don't figure out how to deal with this situation sooner than later. Republican Congresswoman Victoria Sparts of Indiana, thank you so much. I'm glad you're home safe. Apartment buildings turned into heaps of stone, playgrounds full of rubble, caskets of the dead piling up. In a minute, I'm going to show you my visit to a town just outside the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, Borodyanka. Plus, Florida's governor taking on the happiest place, place on earth. Will, will his fight with Disney score him political points or might it backfire? Stay with us. Sticking with our world lead, it may be only a matter of hours, not days, for the hundreds of Ukrainian civilians currently sheltering in the basement of the Azovstal steel factory in the besieged city of Mariupol. Ukrainian forces still have control of the small area, but they are surrounded by Russians, and now an alleged recording of a Russian commander saying they plan to, quote, level everything to the ground around the steel factory, a complex that's four square miles. While CNN cannot vouch for the authenticity of the recording, it's not the first time Ukraine's security service has released intercepted recordings of Russian soldiers talking about killing and raping civilians. And as CNN's Matt Rivers reports, the need for an evacuation quarter is growing more desperate by the hour. The city of Mariupol has been bruised and battered by relentless attacks. Local officials say some 22,000 people have already been killed there, and an estimated 100,000 civilians are desperately waiting to be evacuated from the port city. Ukrainian troops are defending one small corner of the city still under their control, the area around the Azovstal steel plant, where an estimated 1,000 civilians are sheltering. And now a chilling new threat has emerged. The Security Service of Ukraine, or SBU, on Tuesday released a purported communications intercept of a Russian ground unit commander who said Russian aircraft were planning to, quote, level everything to the ground around Azovstal. Yeah. 
CNN cannot vouch for the authenticity of the recording, but the SBU has previously released audio from intercepted radio traffic, revealing Russian soldiers discussing killing and raping civilians, bolstering allegations of war crimes by Russian troops. Military observers have also noted a tendency of Russian troops to use unsecured communications in Ukraine. For now, a Ukrainian commander says Russian forces are, quote, willingly bombing and shelling the plant, a sprawling complex in Mariupol's southeast that once employed more than 10,000 people. It's unclear how many Ukrainian forces are at the site, but one commander says the Russians are using freefall bombs, rockets, bunker buster bombs, and other artillery at the facility. Video posted on government social media, which CNN cannot verify, shows dozens of women and children who say they've been staying under the facility for weeks, holding out against Russian attacks. The surrender deadline Russian forces issued to Ukrainian troops has now expired, but the Russian military official in charge of the operation say they will allow the civilians safe passage out of the area. Russian leadership will guarantee safe evacuation of each and every civilian, as well as the safety of the humanitarian convoys movement, in any direction they choose. It's unclear if the Ukrainians will take the word of the Russian general, who has himself been accused of excesses during the Mariupol campaign. Not all of Mariupol's civilians are in the steel factory. Tens of thousands are trying to survive in other parts of the city. CNN is not in Mariupol, but the Reuters news agency found these people cooking outside a residential building on Monday. They're chopping wood to make a fire, to boil water, some soup, and even cook some pancakes. This woman, cutting a boy's hair, says, quote, they need to quickly fix the water supply problem. How can we live without water? It's horrible. And this woman says of the bombardment, To be honest, we are not well. I have mental problems after airstrikes, that's for sure. I'm really scared. When I hear a plane, I just run away. And Jake, even though the Russian general there said that they would allow civilians to leave, we're hearing the exact opposite from the Ukrainian president uh, with President Zelensky tonight in his uh, nightly address saying that, in fact, the Russians are preventing any humanitarian corridors from being opened out of Mariupol. As for tomorrow, still no word as to whether any humanitarian corridors in Mariupol or in any other part of the country will be open. Jake. Matt Rivers, thank you so much for their report. We have seen the horrific images from Bucha of mass graves and executions just a few miles down the road. Russian soldiers left a similar path of death and destruction in another town. My visit to Borodyanka. That's next. The world has seen evidence of the war crimes committed by Putin's army in Bucha. But just a few miles down the road is the town of Borodyanka. Two weeks ago, Russian soldiers were also forced out of there, and Ukrainians were able to return, but what was left is unrecognizable. I visited Borodyanka with my team on Saturday. The distraction takes your breath away. This was Borodyanka before, a thriving blue-collar town of nearly 13,000 people just 36 miles from the capital of Kiev. Playgrounds full of children, neighbors enjoying the local cafes, for the most part, a quiet and peaceful life. And then the Russians began bombing civilian targets, such as residential apartment buildings, for a full month. And now Borodyanka is a shell of its former self. Craters replace apartment buildings, an empty playground only filled with the remnants of war. Rubble, where apartment buildings once stood. 
a dentist's office with no patients left to treat. Victims of Putin's bombing campaign against Ukrainian civilians. The whole month we were sitting for one month from there and from here. It was flying from there and from here. After occupying the town since late February, the Russians did not hold back as the Ukrainian army forced them to retreat, making sure to leave their mark. This neighborhood in Borodyanka has just been completely and utterly destroyed from the unemployment office over there to the municipal building, the mayor's office there, the police station there. This uh, was a memorial to Ukrainian soldiers who had fought the Russian and pro-Russian separatists in the Donbass region, uh, which began in 2014. The memorial has been completely smashed onto the ground. In fact, the only thing still standing in this immediate area is this memorial right here, this memorial to the soldiers who died fighting in Afghanistan under the Soviets. And now, roughly two weeks after the Russians withdrew after losing the Battle of Kyiv and the surrounding area, people are starting to try to clean up what they can. But what happened here at Borodyanka cannot be swept away. There's no running water or electricity. The people who stayed and those who came back are relying on donations of clothing, food, and water collected at a local church. Yes, yes, we pack into bags, bread, then canned food. Everything that is brought here, we pack into these bags, equally for everybody. People can choose clothing that they need. A shed of waiting caskets serves as a reminder of what is buried under the wreckage, under the rubble that once was Borodyanka. Halina Tsapuk never left. She survived on food in her own garden. She says her sister left the apartment building just before it was bombed. She left it at 6 a.m. and at 8 it was already bombed in the morning. It was a bombing from an aircraft. There were many airplanes flying military over our land plots. So many others inside that building, which looked like this last summer but no longer exists, were not as lucky. Yesterday, they found the bodies of nine people, and the day before, 12. All of them hiding in the basement, all of them trying to seek shelter. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said what happened here may be worse than what happened in Bucha. So far, city officials say the death toll is 50, but every day, firefighters digging through the rubble find more human remains. The firemen just uh, came over and, and dropped off this notebook that they found in the rubble of the building that used to be here. It's the deed to the building and the apartment records. The firemen just keep coming over and putting these little bits of the humanity of the people who used to live here as if they're going to come back and claim it as if any of them survived. Look, there's a wedding photo. Lives seemingly on pause, about to be reclaimed at any moment, but in reality, stopped forever by the savagery of Putin's war. It is not clear when, if ever, there will be a full understanding of how many Innocent civilians were killed in Borodyanka. As the firefighters said, every time they try to clean up the rubble, they find remains. And this is just one town with this one horrific story among so many from this war.
Coming up, taking on Disney, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' latest controversial move. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, Florida lawmakers are back in Tallahassee for a special session after Republican Governor Ron DeSantis vetoed a congressional map passed by the Republican-controlled legislature. DeSantis instead proposed a new one, one that would dramatically shift power in North and Central Florida. CNN's Diane Gallagher is in Tallahassee. And Diane, the special session just started. What are Democrats saying about DeSantis's map? Well, Jake, they're calling it racist, authoritarian, unconstitutional, and really that's just what I can say on camera here. Uh, Democrats say that this proposal from Governor Ron DeSantis would not only add more Republican seats, but it would diminish black representation in Congress for the state of Florida. There are currently five black members of Congress from Florida. Four of them are Democrats, and this map proposal would eliminate two of those seats, uh, Representative Val Demings and Al Lawson seats. Now, Ron DeSantis says that the reason behind this map and his veto of his own party's approved maps was because he wanted a, quote, race-neutral map that he felt adhered to the U.S. Constitution. But Democrats have said that not only do they feel that this would be in violation of the Voting Rights Act, but also in violation of Florida's own state constitution, which which mandates the protection of those minority districts. Jake, it will likely pass uh, out of this special session late this week, and then it will likely end up in court. And, and Diane, there's, there's another big story going on in Tallahassee right now. Governor DeSantis is, is changing the agenda at the special session to include a review of Walt Disney World and the special status that Walt Disney World has in Florida. Uh, tell us what you're hearing about that. Yeah, that special status, it's a special district and it essentially allows them to operate as their own government around their Orlando area theme park. This all stems from that so-called don't say gay bill that was signed earlier this year that prevents uh, teachers in schools from talking about gender orient, gender uh, uh, identity and sexual orientation. Disney spoke out afterward. And at this point, I spoke to the bill's sponsor He said that this wasn't necessarily retaliation, but that after Disney did that and said that they were going to stop donating in the state of Florida, that they started looking in to the state's uh, one of the largest attractions and employers. And that's where this came from. I think had Disney not done what they had done, we wouldn't have gone and taken a look at special districts and realized we had this issue with these pre-constitution special districts. That wouldn't have happened. And that's why I say when you, when you kick the bee's nest, um, sometimes things come out. And that's absolutely happened here. Now, Democrats say that this particular bill seems to uh, be in uh, direct opposition of existing statutes, Jake, that would allow the residents of that special district to have to vote to get rid of it. Uh, But it does appear that it will pass out. Interesting. Diane Gallagher in Tallahassee for us. Thank you so much. Let's discuss. Uh, Ramesh, let me start with you. Is Governor DeSantis taking on Disney for the right reasons or is it just because they criticized that legislation? What, What do you think? Well, I think politicians' motives are always mixed, or at least usually mixed. The funny thing about this is that Disney's special status and its commingling of government and corporate power has always had these kind of gadfly critics, mostly on the left. And now it's a Republican governor, you know, for, I think, pretty straightforward political motivations, who has got it in his targets. So in other words, maybe not the worst thing in the world. 
No, I think I think that there's a strong case that the privileges just don't make sense and that this has just been something that people have just accepted as a fact of life in Florida politics for decades now. But now all of a sudden, because of the way the politics of DeSantis and Disney have played out, it's up for grabs again. But they're not looking at all of the special districts where corporations are given governmental power. In fact, DeSantis made the announcement today. How's this for irony? At the Villages. You've been there. It's the most gargantuan retirement community on earth. And it tends some voter to, fraud there, by the way. I, there, there, there is some, apparently. <laughs> no, no, there um, is. I, I, I don't. Anyway, keep going. They have the same type of special corporate governmental power, but they tend to be very conservative, so DeSantis isn't going after them. So I just think it's, an, it's a novel thing, going after the largest employer in your state. In my home state of Texas, the governor uh, essentially closed down the border, cost his state, his own state, $477 million of economic activity. It's a new Republican strategy is to attack the economic engines of their states. Uh, but, people but people used not, to want Republicans to be less corporate. Now you're seeing it. <laughs> that's now it's but but, but, but he, that's not the only private company that he's mentioned. He also talked about taking Twitter to task for and, this poison pill that their board put in um, to stop Elon Musk from buying the company. It That, I mean, wh- why Florida would have anything to do with that is beyond me, but it does seem to be a message toward perhaps the larger goal for Governor DeSantis, which could be 2024, could be further down the line. But it seems like he's hitting all of these touchstone cultural issues. Yeah. That it, and it really seems to be part of a larger, uh, more national, let's say, um, uh, message. I do, I do see lots of conservative activists really liking what they see uh, out, of, out of Governor DeSantis. Yeah, they would like it. I don't see Disney uh, eliciting a whole lot of sympathy um, but just because you can doesn't mean that you should in Gover- Governor DeSantis's case, not only on this issue, but also in terms of the redistricting. I remember last year when Congressman James Comer of Kentucky, there was talk about the Republican legislature there uh, chewing up Louisville, uh, which uh, is uh, a, a very liberal uh, district. And he said, don't get cute because these things can end up in court. It looks like Governor DeSantis is not all that worried about the potential for this ending up in court, but it could have... Uh, other impacts. For instance, it could mobilize the black electorate in Florida who feel uh, put off by this and feel as though they are going to end up without accurate, reflective representation. Right. Well, there are two black districts, I guess, the Democratic black districts, largely um, that that he's keeping. He's getting rid of two others. And then there's a Republican African-American congressman, too. So it's not like he's getting rid of all of them. Right. But he is he is talking about getting rid of of two of them. Right. And he feels as though if there are court challenges the conservative uh, Supreme Court in Florida is going to support him in this decision. But it still is. Or the federal courts, too, because you've got, I mean, he's making a stand that federal law trumps state law when it comes to these sorts of districting issues. But but politically, it doesn't come without any risk. That's right. Right. The backlash. But in terms of the redistricting, I mean, you see this all over the map, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, people really just getting super aggressive, nobody really even even trying to hide it anymore. Am I wrong? No, you're right. Uh, New York, a Democratic-controlled state, looks like they're going to produce a map that's extraordinarily beneficial for their party. And Illinois got rid of Adam Kinzinger's seat. I right, mean, right. But, and he's retiring. Very often states will do that when someone is retiring. They'll he's say, retiring because well, no, they the, got rid the, of the, the seat. <laughs> no, he's retiring because Trump hates him. Trump was going to beat him. Well, both of these things, I think. But, but the well, big constraint on how aggressive the parties have been on districting has been incumbent protection. Because sometimes the incumbents want more of their party's people in their district, even if that means you have fewer seats that you can contest. Yeah. I want to turn now to COVID because this afternoon, um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra, said the Biden administration would likely appeal 
this judge is ruling to end the mask mandate for public transit. Um, 51% of Americans in a poll last month wanted this mandate for transit to go away. Over and over, we've seen people celebrating on trains, trashing their masks. Do you think the Biden administration uh, runs a risk of, of pissing off voters, uh, not just Republicans, uh, but also independent voters, even Democrats, uh, by insisting on this mask mandate? Well, it does seem, I mean, yes, that's what, what Secretary Becerra is saying, but you also had Jen Psaki saying that they were waiting to see what DOJ was going to do. And then you had President Biden say, you know, it's up to you whether to wear a mask or not. So they seem to be kind of all over the map. So there is, a, and that they're, they're following CDC guidance. So there seems to be a, you know, a science-based, we're going to follow the science, but then there's also political, there's, there's some politi- politics going on here. I know, I'm shocking everyone at this <laughs> table. And they are looking at those polls. They are looking at the backlash to you know, continuing some of these mask mandates when they said they were going to extend it for two weeks or whatever right. it was. Right, it's supposed to expire May 3rd anyway. I mean, one of the questions is, did the Biden people com- completely mishandle this in the sense that this is going to end anyway? It was supposed to end May 3rd. Now this Trump-appointed judge... Uh, gets rid of it, and Biden doesn't even get the credit, even if they're not going to challenge it. Right. Republicans are declaring this a political victory because this feeds into their uh, longstanding narrative that Democrats and President Biden in particular have overreached in the pandemic. I will say this, though. This issue doesn't always fall so neatly on political lines. There are perhaps some conservative that are um, have children, young children who can't get vaccinated who might be worried about this. Or, you know, Republicans who have uh, family members with underlying health conditions that maybe don't feel great about getting on a plane uh, without people wearing a mask. So I think the, the politics of this are not always so cut and dry. Yeah, that's right. And, there, and uh, I totally agree with that. And I think there are also some Democrats who are sick and tired of these mandates and were, you know, sort of felt a little liberated if they were on some of these flights where the announcement was made mid-flight. I don't think it has to have been a political loss for the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. I think the Biden administration, in a way, was let off the hook here because it could mm-hmm. it could say to some of its most hardcore supporters who want these things to stay on indefinitely, look, this is a judge. This is out of our hands. And meanwhile, the public is, is removed. This irritant for the public is removed. Yes, I, I suspect they're happy with the politics of it for the reasons Ramesh and, and Eva say. But there is a legality here. The, the CDC, in the eyes of the Biden administration, has got to have the power to impose certain mandates for public health emergencies. Without well, worrying about a judge over Without some Trump judge in Florida throwing it out for the whole country. Um, so there's the, the authority, the public health authority, I suspect they want to defend. I, I think they're, I would be, I can't speak for them. I think I'd be very happy to see the mandate go away right now for politics. Yeah, they didn't get rid of it before I had my nine-hour flight from Germany, but that's another matter. (laughs) My thanks to the panel. Coming up, he was poisoned by Putin, then jailed for more than a year, but he's refusing to give up the fight. A real-life thriller is now a gripping film, and that's next. Russian opposition leader and fierce Putin critic Alexei Navalny has now been in jail for more than a year. The story of how Navalny ended up there after surviving an alleged murder attempt And tracking down his own would-be assassins is told with the urgency and drama of a spy thriller in the new CNN film, Navalny. Here's a preview. When you come to a room of a comatose patient, you start doing, you just telling him the news, telling him his story. Alexei, don't worry. You were poisoned, there was a murder attempt. Putin tried to kill you with Novichok. And he opened his, like, blue eyes wide and looked at me and said very clear, 
блять, что? Это же так тупо. Come on, poisoned? I don't believe it. Like he's back. This is Alexei. Putin's supposed to be not so stupid to use this novichok. His wording, his explosive, his intonation. If you want to kill someone, just shoot him. Jesus Christ. Like real Alexei. It's impossible to believe it. It's kind of stupid. The, the whole idea of poisoning with a chemical weapon. What the fuck? This is why this is so smart. Because even reasonable people, they refuse to believe, like, what? Come on, poisoned? Seriously? The Kremlin and Russia's security services, of course, deny that they played any role in Navalny's poisoning, just like they denied they were going to invade Ukraine. Joining us now is CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance, who has reported extensively on Russia and Putin for years. Matthew, good to see you. Alexei Navalny is in prison he has served a little bit more than a year of an 11-year sentence, and now Russia is waging this horrific war against neighboring Ukraine. What role does Navalny play in Russia today? Oh, it's a good question because it was it was it was sort of debatable. I mean, I've covered Navalny for, for many years as well. Um, it's debatable what role he played before the war in Ukraine because it was never entirely clear just how many Russians, how many millions of Russians supported his anti-corruption campaign. He was certainly attracting a lot of attention with his investigations into the uh, wealth, the unexplained wealth of Russian officials and particularly of, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin. And and that made him a lot of enemies um, in the country, not least of whom is, is Vladimir Putin. But I think you know, what's important about Russia, about Alexei Navalny now, uh, as we are sort of in this new phase, really, of Russia's relationship with the rest of the world in, in the middle of this horrific invasion of Ukraine, is it, you know, he is a reminder that many, many Russians do not support Vladimir Putin. There are many millions of people in the country who are fundamentally opposed uh, to the regime of the of the of the of Vladimir Putin right now, and to the way the Kremlin operates, and of course to the actions it takes uh, overseas. And I think you know sometimes in 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 the global coverage of the the crisis in Ukraine, the conflict there, the the invasion, and of the massive sanctions that have been imposed against Russia because of this, you know, obviously very justifiable given the human rights abuses uh, that have been taking place. There's a tendency to forget that Russia isn't monolithic, that there are millions of people inside the country who are, you know, who have bravely stood against the kind of uh, policies uh, that, that Russia has been embarked on uh, here in Ukraine and well, also in Ukraine and elsewhere, of course, um, around the world, as well as domestically, Jake. Matthew, what, what does the future hold for Navalny, do you think? Do you see him eventually getting out of prison, playing a role uh, in Russian politics? Um, it's 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 not clear. I mean, look, I mean, we're, we're, because we're in this this whole new world of Russia right now, I, I think that, you know, on the one hand, you know, Alexei Navalny continues to be a reminder uh, if we needed one or, or at least for a foreshadow of the kind of ruthlessness that Vladimir Putin uh, is prepared to adopt uh, and the government of Russia is prepared to adopt towards its enemies, towards people it sees as, as traitors. 
this very much foreshadowed, along with the broader crackdown on independent media and on dissidents uh, inside Russia, very much foreshadowed the conflict in Ukraine. Now, looking, uh, looking back on it. But there's still a big question mark hanging over what role uh, Alexei Navalny is going to be able to play in the future, um, what role Vladimir Putin is going to have in the future. Uh, certainly, it seems that you know, any, any prospect of Russia rehabilitating its sort of its, itself, you know, having sanctions lifted in some significant way, it looks pretty unlikely, doesn't it, at the moment with Vladimir Putin at the helm. But, you know, it's still not entirely clear whether the future of Russia is going to be Vladimir Putin and the people around Vladimir Putin, whether the future of Russia is going to be the sort of more sort of liberal anti-corruption campaigners who are you know, personified, of course, and led by Alexei Navalny. Matthew Chance, thank you so much. Be sure to tune in. The all-new CNN film Navalny premieres Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Netflix just did something it has not done since 2011. It might mean bad news for some users. That's, a, that's next. In our money lead, your friends might appreciate you sharing your Netflix, Netflix password, but Netflix, not so much. In a first quarter earnings report, the streaming giant lost 200,000 global subscribers. The last time Netflix lost subscribers was October 2011. Along with account sharing, Netflix blames increased competition in the streaming arena, and the company expects to lose even more, $2 million in the next quarter. As a result, Netflix stock tanked more than 20% in after-hours trading. Analysts say to expect a crackdown on password sharing. The company estimates Netflix is being shared with 100 million households. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, I'm not sure if you know this, but if you ever miss one, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call The Situation Room. See you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.